uh, I'm prepared to lay my life down uh, for President Zuma. Uh, if President Zuma continued to be targeted, that our country will be torn apart. Because of what happened last day where they killed our brothers and sisters, I feel unsafe walking around Phoenix because I see them as aggressive and ruthless people. Okay. And and tell me, what are you guys... I mean, we saw your, some of you guys firing with... Firing, yes. Yeah. So, so tell me, why were you guys firing? What happened? Were there guns drawn on them or...? We trying to chase them out because you can't chase them with mouths. see hey, go away. You know, some people who want action. Like, we don't fire fire them. Like, we like, fire, fire, fire on top. That is why. Okay. That's, uh, that's what happening. You can see they're they even running away because they hear some gunshots. When yeah. South Africa woke up to looting and destruction and chaos in KwaZulu-Natal, which then spread to Kauteg, police woke up to the same thing because they had no idea that it was going to happen. According to Police Minister Becky Trele, a minimum of 86 people were arrested for their involvement in crimes related to the 2021 July unrest in South Africa. Among those arrested were allegedly 12 instigators of violence, 36 for their alleged role in the murder of others and 31 for attempted murder in Phoenix, north of Durban. But one year later and the eight days that marked the turbulent time between the 9th of July and the 18th of July are now known as the bloodiest days in South Africa's democratic history. For those of us who were there, for those of us who remember, the 86 people arrested don't even come close to reflecting the actual amount of people involved and don't even get us started on actual prosecutions for those responsible. Most of us will never be able to forget the hordes on the streets carrying furniture and foodstuffs from burning stores, the running gun battles between community vigilantes, so-called protecting their own, and waves of desperate, opportunistic, or even calculating looters destabilizing the country's very hard-fought-for democracy. For many South Africans, it's really the shock of the speed with which South Africa descended into lawlessness and the realization that no one was on their way to help. No one seemed to be able to restore order. In today's episode of Boots on the Ground, behind South Africa's biggest headlines, We commemorate the bloodiest days in our democratic history by not only reliving what our country went through, but also trying to make sense of what we've learned from it. You're going to hear testimony from looters themselves who saw an opportunity and took it. Community members who witnessed racial tension rip through their hometowns. Vigilantes justifying gun-toting to protect their homes and their neighbours. And of course, recollections from our journalists on the ground. For this episode of Boots on the Ground, behind South Africa's national headlines, I am your host, Paige Muller.
If truth be told, the 2021 July riots must be said to have really begun on the 29th of June 2021, when embattled former President Jacob Zuma was sentenced to 15 months in prison for contempt of court by South Africa's Constitutional Court after he refused to appear before the Judicial Commission of Inquiry into allegations of state capture, commonly known as the State Capture Commission or the Zondo Commission. The Constitutional Court makes the following order. It is declared that Mr. Jacob Gedlechlegisazuma is guilty of the crime of contempt of court for failure to comply with the order made by this court in Secretary of the Judicial Commission of Inquiry into allegations of state capture, corruption and fraud in the public sector. Mr. Jacob Gedlechlegisazuma is sentenced to undergo 15 months imprisonment. In the past few hours, it's been announced that South Africa's top court has sentenced the former president, Jacob Zuma, to 15 months in jail for contempt of court. No person is above the law. This is the message from South Africa's highest court. This is what the court said when earlier today it sentenced a former president to prison. It's the first time a former South African leader is facing jail time. Former South African president Jacob Zuma has been sentenced to 15 months behind bars after being found guilty of contempt of court. Various commentators in the legal sphere have hailed yesterday's constitutional court decision to sentence former president Jacob Zuma as a clear reminder to all South Africans that nobody is above the law. As you've just heard, this was global news. Funnily enough, the commission, which is aimed at investigating allegations of state capture, corruption and fraud in the public sector, was established in January of 2018 by former President Jacob Zuma himself. But on the several occasions that the commission called upon him to appear and give testimony, the former president either claimed that he was too ill or when he did appear, he alleged that the commission was a conspiracy and was biased against him. Here's Jacob Zuma speaking to the initial formation of the commission. I urge everyone to cooperate with the commission of inquiry. I trust that we will all respect the process and place no impediments to prevent the commission from doing its work. And here he is at one of his very first appearances at the commission, claiming that it was set up to besmirch his character. I, I still, I'm still waiting for somebody to come and tell me, said, yes, you were told here that elect or appointed this one, and you did in this way and that way. Because I've been waiting so that I can really ask the kind of a person where did you get this from? But it has been made to be included in the narrative get rid of Zuma. The whole country. At one point there was a demonstration that we have never seen before. When the white community came out in great numbers, Zuma must go. What has he done? Nobody can tell. He's corrupt. What has he done? Nothing. Zuma was, and still is, the very first president in South Africa's history to be sentenced to jail time. Not even South Africa's apartheid leadership faced jail time. And before he so much as stepped a toe out of his Enkantla homestead, his supporters across the country were voicing their distaste. 
This is Karl Niehaus in his position as spokesperson of the ruling party's former armed military wing, the MKMVA, on July 2nd. And especially in the last few months, we've warned that if President Zuma is going to be imprisoned, that there will be instability and unrest in South Africa. Your response indicates exactly the situation that we face ourselves with now. We've warned the National Executive Committee of the ANC and also the justices in the Constitutional Court and also the Deputy Chief Justice, Mr. Justice Zondu. If President Zuma continued to be targeted, that our country will be torn apart. That violence will be inevitable because of this. Zuma was given until the end of the 4th of July to hand himself in. But the 4th came, and the 4th went, and he didn't. After that, the South African police service would be obliged to arrest him. The police were given until the 7th, and as the sun began to set, it seemed as if the whole of South Africa held its breath, waiting to see if the police would move in and arrest their former president and what the outcome of a forcible arrest might be. This is Zuma's son, Edward Zuma, standing guard outside in Kantla on the evening of the 7th. I've made known my decision and I reiterate and emphasize my decision to say uh, with what uh, I've seen over the years as to how uh, President Zuma has been uh, harassed, you know, uh, the conspiracy against him. I think my decision is known and I think we still maintain that decision to say uh, I am not going to allow uh, any law enforcement agencies to harass President Zuma further than, the, than what they have done already. Uh, they would have to uh, take my life. Uh, I'm prepared to lay my life down uh, for President Zuma. Uh, you know, I, I think I've been very clear to say uh, should they take a decision that they want to come today and arrest President Zuma, they will find me at the gate uh, with my uh, you know, with my uh, gadgets. At the time, Sunday Times legal correspondent Franny Rubkin also explained that although Zuma was legally due to be arrested, there were still a lot of mixed reports coming out of the police. We are unsure what the police are going to do. The police seem to be prevaricating. On the one hand, Police Minister Begitrele was on the news yesterday saying that if he loses in the High Court or if he's sent away from the High Court and if there's no directions from the Constitutional Court, the police will arrest Zuma. On the other hand, in the letter that they wrote to the Constitutional Court that was on Monday, the wording of the letter was to the effect that they would do nothing until the litigation was over. 
unless the constitutional court gave them directions. So it's unclear what the attitude of the police is, but that is supposed to be what happens according to the law. Remember that a rescission application doesn't suspend an order. Oren Singh, a senior reporter for the Sunday Times based in KZN, was also stationed outside of Zuma's in Kantla homestead on the evening of his pending arrest. Journalists, photographers and camera crews could be seen dotted along the hillside opposite his Nkandla compound. The day was hazy with predictions, the lines blurred of what was the only life the 79-year-old had known, the African National Congress. It was a baptism of fire for all, those seasoned and those wet behind the ears, with no pool being able to offer a respite for what would follow. Hollywood would have died to see it unfold. Shortly after 10 a.m., murmurs among journalists began to surface. The country's outspoken top cop, Becky Tele, was said to be heading to Nkandla. It was shaping up to be a bloody showdown, as Zuma's pride and Tele's arrogance would take center stage along the winding roads of Nkandla. Hundreds of men and women in blue had been deployed to the region, Tele having adequately prepared for war, following unrest days earlier when Zuma supporters spat in the face of COVID-19 regulations, threatening bloodshed should any hands be laid on Umshilozi. Throughout the day, police vehicles strolled up and down past Zuma's homestead as members of Mkontowe Sizwe Military Veterans Association stood guard outside his gate. Confidence fueled one of the drivers of these vehicles to attempt to gain access to the compound as he pulled into the driveway. Before one could even blink, the overzealous driver and his crew were stopped by MKMVA members and sent packing from whence they came. The day progressed to the tune that only those in the media could appreciate, a classic melody that the country's journalists have become accustomed to when covering politics. Hurry up and wait. As the sun set behind one of the far-reaching hilltops, it brought with it a bone-chilling cold that seemed to set the tone for an 11th-hour bid to have Zuma's arrest warrant rolled over until Friday. Darkness quickly descended on the land, leaving the media with the job of illuminating the foreground on which history would be made. Lights, camera, action. All eyes focused on every moving vehicle in the area, blue lights being the curtain call for Zuma. News surfaced that a letter had been drafted by Zuma's attorneys to the Constitutional Court. The last-minute plea, as his gasps for freedom slowly started to fade. At 10.30pm, an hour and a half before Zuma's deadline for surrender, a stream of red lights and sirens made their way from the bottom of the valley. A private ambulance pulled into the driveway and was immediately blockaded by Zuma's die-hard supporters. MKMVA members surrounded the front of the vehicle. The driver, a paramedic, was rattled by the scenes, knob carries and sticks swinging in the air as loud whistles echoed through the street. A few minutes later, provisions were made for the ambulance to enter the Nkandla homestead. At 11.15pm, amid a clear night sky, flickering with stars, a nine-vehicle motorcade rushed out of the driveway. Zuma was seen by one of the journalists in the second vehicle, a black BMW X5 with the windows tinted darker than the midnight sky itself. Screeching wheels saw the motorcade set down off the road and into the abyss. Zuma would be heading to his new home, ironically, a home his administration had developed. 
the Escort Correctional Center. Before the clock struck midnight, heavily winded journalists made their way out of Nkanda, having documented a piece of South African history. Zuma eventually surrendered himself and was taken to prison in Escort just before midnight on Wednesday, July 7th. With confirmation of his arrival in the wee hours of Thursday morning on the 8th. The police ministry can confirm that former president of South Africa, Mr. Jacob Zuma, was on the 8th of July 2021 placed in the custody of the South African Police Service in compliance with the Constitutional Court judgment. But still, South Africa held its collective breath to see how Zuma's loyal support base would handle the news. A sigh of relief seemed to be experienced countrywide on the morning of the 8th, as no serious reports of initial violence came in. But things began to change that evening, as reports slowly began to filter in from KZN. All this way, presumably people that are coming here to also get exactly what they can get out of this warehouse. All of the doors are open, people are walking in. But the most interesting part of all of this that's playing out now is a short while ago, we saw a convoy of Metro Police vehicles that were exiting this area. On the morning of the 9th, all hell had broken loose. In the heart of a township on the outskirts of Johannesburg, people seized and stole at will. In South Africa, rioting and looting rocked parts of the country again overnight. It is the worst violence in South Africa since the 1990s and the end of apartheid. There was no room on the road which wraps itself around the port of Durban. It had been turned into a thoroughfare for raiders and thieves. Moving on to the latest from South Africa, unrest continues to rage across the country for the sixth straight day since former President Jacob Zuma began his 15-month jail term. In South Africa, we're seeing some of the worst political violence in that country since apartheid, and the death toll is now up to at least 72. Throughout KwaZulu-Natal and Gauteng, mobs seem to be forming and mobilizing without any discernible leadership. Vast crowds of people were freely breaking into shopping centers, looting stores and destroying property. There was no memorandum given, no spokesperson with a set of demands, no one even requested Zuma's release in exchange for an end to the violence, and casualties were piling up daily. It seemed as if the entire country had somehow organically descended headlong into anarchy. With the majority of the looting and upheaval taking place in KwaZulu-Natal and Gauteng, a long night outside in Kantla for Oren quickly became a very long week. Amid the sheer mental exhaustion of witnessing buildings and retail outlets ravaged, satellite and torn to the ground, chaos reigned supreme as apocalyptic scenes played out before us. There was a clear divide drawn among many citizens who had for so long lived peacefully side by side. Racial tensions, anger, fear, uncertainty, remorse, and the realization of who we were and what we weren't, the haves and the have-nots, it was clear as daylight. I recall driving into the province's capital of Pietermaritzburg. The N3 was dead quiet with barely a vehicle in sight as we dodged debris 
which had been strewn across parts of the highway to deter motorists from using the national road. Smoke from several fires filtered through the air as myself and a colleague inched our way closer to PMB. We would soon be in the heart of a war zone as the streets were overrun with people carrying furniture, packets of groceries and clothing that they had looted from stores in and around the CBD. Brookside Mall was a no-go zone as looters had blocked off all the entrances to the mall to allow themselves more times to make off with the goods. In the days that followed, Brookside Mall would be burnt to the ground. Food and fuel would become the number one priority on everyone's list. Many shops closed their doors to customers due to the severity of the situation. No store was safe. Petrol stations ran out of fuel within a day or so as trucks were unable to deliver fuel due to the roads being closed off and the sheer danger that was posed to drivers. Bread and milk were among the first items to go. Within two days, not a single drink or food item was left on any of the shelves of many food outlets, either being sold or looted. Communities began mobilizing due to the inefficiency of police and started protecting the malls and stores in their suburbs. Many communities closed off roads to their suburbs and began questioning each and every person who entered the area as to where they were coming from and where they were going. Some communities went as far as not allowing people into the area if they could not produce a proof of residence. Within a space of a few days, things had quickly turned into a reality doomsday preppers show. Many community policing forum members were heavy-handed, often stopping people with vehicles of looted goods and taking the law into their own hands, dishing out beatings and confiscating these goods. I recall speaking to a looter on Amgeni Road, who told me he had looted the clothing store he worked for. When I questioned him as to why he would do that, given the fact that he would now be out of a job, he simply replied that if he did not loot, he would not have anything to go home with, because either way, his place of employment was being ravaged. An elderly woman stood along Queen Nandi Drive amid a mass of people rushing around her carrying TVs, fridges and microwaves. She stood there in a bright red dress and beanie, holding a bag of mealy meal and a few tins of baked beans. She was bewildered and motionless. Time stood still for her as the chaos flashed before her eyes. At Virginia Airport in Durban North, some of the province's elite boarded private helicopters, planes and jets to Johannesburg just to purchase food. Some families boarded flights to Cape Town, taking their pets with them. Myself and a colleague, Sandilia and Glovu, got wind of a shipment of ammunition that had been looted in the harbour. We drove straight there and not to our surprise, there were no guards on duty. The boom gates of a national key point left wide open as hundreds of shipping containers were left unguarded. We didn't manage to see anyone looting shipping containers that afternoon, but police would later confirm that ammunition was indeed stolen. While the whole country seemed to be able to read the signs and anticipate some kind of political or physical fallout, from the moment Zuma's pending arrest was announced, our so-called intelligence agencies seemed to be the only ones in the dark about the fact that this could potentially become a problem. As a result, South Africa's law enforcement was not ready to deploy. And in communities that were very literally set ablaze, there was no help at hand. In fact, while the country began to burn down literally one looted mall at a time, South Africa's top brass didn't even seem sure what they were dealing with. Was the unexpected violent outbreak a carefully planned and orchestrated revolt? also being called an insurgent by the presidency. It is clear now that the events of the past week 
when nothing less than a deliberate, a coordinated, and a well-planned attack on our democracy. The constitutional order of our country is under threat. These actions are intended to cripple the economy of our country, to cause social instability, and severely weaken or even dislodge the democratic state. Using the pretext of a political grievance, those behind these acts have sought to provoke a popular insurrection amongst our people. Or was the violent unrest a result of criminality and hunger, as suggested by the ANC's Provincial Secretary Jacob Kawe in Gauteng, who released a statement saying, and I quote, Gauteng has characterized the unrest as an act of criminality, hunger and unemployment. We noted the unfortunate use of former President Jacob Zuma's name as the base, but we now know that this is far from the truth. This view was also briefly expressed by Defence Minister Nosiviwe Mapisa Ngakula in comments she made while speaking at a parliamentary joint standing committee on defence. What we see, in fact, we've also had people making reference to insurrection, coup, and, and the issue is if it's an insurrection, then the insurrection must have a face if it's an insurrection against government. If it is about a coup, the coup will also have a face. But none of those so far talk to that. Our view is that we probably are seeing signs of a counter-revolution in the form of a criminality and thuggery. Nivashni Naya, senior Sunday Times reporter in KwaZulu-Natal, who is still tracking the inquiry set up by the South African Human Rights Commission into 2021's July unrest, tries to explain how South Africa's military response could be so lackluster at such a critical juncture. So before the commission, we had South Africa's top police brass testifying and very little answers were given as to the actual cause of the uh, unrest as well as the plans in place uh, to have addressed it. So what we heard had shocked South Africans. Um, It gave rise to the sense or it strengthened the belief that we have a dysfunctional police force, especially when this uh, country's national commissioner, this is the person that is the police boss that oversees everything in the country in the force, tells the commission that the police had no intelligence when it came to the unrest. They basically did not know that this was going to happen, despite social media threats, as well as clear threats from Inkadla that the exact quotes were, blood will flow if former President Jacob Zuma is arrested. But our South African police testified that their operational plan only extended to his arrest. It didn't look beyond. It did not go into these threats. And the intelligence officers who should have been gathering information on on the unrest just did not have that information. So when South Africa woke up 
to looting and destruction and chaos in KwaZulu-Natal, which then spread to Kauteng, police woke up to the same thing because they had no idea that it was going to happen. The unsurety and lack of law and order quickly spiraled out of control, splitting communities in South Africa into those who loot and those who stop looters. While the riots were very clearly well organized, with a witness that we found in a small village just outside of Nkantla, who we will keep anonymous for the purposes of this production, claiming that she was at home with her mother, a friend, and her niece and nephew when she heard about the looting. She says she watched as two men she didn't recognize wearing ANC t-shirts drove around her neighborhood in a white van. On a loud hailer, she says they were begging residents to loot the town to help force Zuma's release. Her mother and the friend that she was with at the time both confirmed her story. Messages the Sunday Times has obtained screen grabs of also suggested that organized looters targeted large chain stores and big businesses alleged to be close to President Cyril Ramaphosa. South African Shack Dwellers Movement President Spu Zikoda said that McDonald's, ShopRite and Woolworths were some of the key stores that were targeted by disgruntled ANC factions with an agenda to target specific stores because they were angry with Ramaphosa. He added that the people who planned this knew what they were doing and used the anger and poverty of millions to push their agenda. And that kind of seems to be exactly what happened. While it is clear that there were initial instigators to last year's devastating riots, the widespread destruction and looting soon took on a life of its own. We spoke to several looters to try and understand why they looted. Turns out, most of them simply saw an opportunity and took it. Here's why a few of the people we interviewed chose to count themselves among the looters. We saw people carrying kellogs and we thought, we're sitting here while people are doing this, and we thought we should go see. When we awoke the next morning, the real looting began, and many people lost their lives and jobs. Our mothers and sisters are now unemployed at home. People were fired at work for opening the stores while in possession of the store keys. Even now, people are still unemployed and struggling to find work. Our mall is still under construction. We don't know if the people who used to work there are still employed. Did you take a, like a huge appliance, like Roma fridge? No, nah, not, not large appliance. I took small, like a mouse pipe, a I chose items that are easy to sell and that the children can eat and have lunch on the following day at school. The meal was all over the floor and the only thing that was left was a Danone, sweets and stationery. The kids are still using the stationery we stole during the looting. I also took doors and we sold them to make a living. All of the items we took have been sold and I have forgotten about them. But the house is still stocked with delicious snacks. 
So how long that grocery lasted? Nah, I'm fifty. Within a month, it was. Nah, finished. within a month, cause I want to like. The grocery lasted less than a month because shop owners would come in and buy and neighbors would come in when they ran out of food. I was there as well and I was simply unlucky because I looted at work and when my bosses caught me on the camera looting, I was fired on the spot. I learned about the looting late at night, but I dismissed it as something that usually happens when community members loot at the Pakistan's puzzle shop and chase them away. When I woke up in the morning, everyone was off to loot, and when I inquired, I was told that there would be a food shortage, so they lied about a food shortage. I considered it, but because of financial constraints, I decided to join them because I had nothing to rely on and was broke. I looted food and clothes. It was early in the morning, so when we got out, the police approached us, calling us out and ordering us to lie on the ground. My heart was bleeding. And I realized that even though I was trying to hustle, I had shot myself in the foot. We were arrested. I can't remember the name of the prison we were imprisoned. I'm deeply sorry now, let alone the arrest, losing my job, having a child, and having to find ways and means. The grant money is small, and my mother is entirely dependent on me. It hurts, and I'm not going to lie. Even though I'm getting peace jobs, they're nothing compared to my previous job. My gut instinct told me it would end in tears, but I persisted. Following the looting, people admitted that life had been extremely difficult and that they now regretted their actions. We couldn't get millies except Sentin and Greenstone malls when we ran out. Before the incident, we could get it at the Pakistan Father Shop, Pen of Freedom. We must go outside, Santin, Greenstone, using outside malls. To get, just to get a millimeter. To get millimeter, dry packs. To get what to add, because you know some of the people don't eat uh, big things from Makula. I see, because sometimes it's because of the spoil. You pay for it, and after the looting, you discover that the bread from the Pakistan is rotten due to the bakery drug failing to deliver. So people decided to open their own bakery. When the looting initially occurred in Durban and Maritzburg, people began posting on Facebook that they would furthermore loot in Greytown the next day.
The very next day, I went to work and we were dismissed very early due to the looting that was going on. On my way home, I came along a large number of people looting, so a friend of mine and I went to see what was going on. Having been roaming around, and we were so tempted to loot that we did. The first store we went to was Pep, where we took boots and clothes before leaving. However, policemen began shooting at us, so we left the clothes. But even so, other policemen pleaded that we only take clothes and not burn the property. Later, other people took refrigerators, televisions, and cell phones. I got clothes, boots, extensions, and a fridge from the looting. I even decided to hire a bucky to deliver the fridge, but it wasn't delivered to my house. Instead, I put it somewhere else. Police and soldiers went door to door until they found the fridge where it was hidden, took it. Nobody was caught because the house where I initially left the fridge was empty. Things drastically changed after the looting. Food was scarce and many stores closed. Nothing was the same. But as some got caught up in the potential for making some easy money, others became de facto law enforcers, vigilantes patrolling the streets with firearms looking to protect public infrastructure. In some cases... This version of extreme community policing proved to be a successful method of protecting local businesses and infrastructure, as was the case with Mbulelo Dube and his team of four private security officers who fanned out information to cover one another as they battled to force looters to retreat outside of Watercrest Mall, west of Durban. Our main target wasn't to harm the people, mm. but it was just to disperse the crowd mm. and make sure that they don't end up setting our sight alight mm. for no reason because they've already done what they, they had planned to do mm. which was to loot and all the unnecessary uh, trauma that was happening. Let's talk about police presence. Obviously uh, SAPS Metro were thinly stretched <laughs> across the province. <laughs> but uh... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'll tell you. Tell me about this. They didn't do anything yeah. for us. Understand? Every single site I was at, I didn't see any policemen. At Watercrest Mall, there were six cars that I counted while I was on duty that drove past. Mm -hmm. Not to, to at least like stop and understand what's happening mm -hmm. or, or how we, we're handling the situation. Do we need assistance or anything like that. No. Similarly, with heavily armed gangs of marauding looters swarming across Fosleras on Khateng's East Rand, a group of taxi drivers refused point blank to allow the destruction of what they considered their public infrastructure. Louise Horn 
manager of a small family-owned travelling funfair, says that her and her 13 staff members are incredibly thankful after being rescued from looters in Forslerus by none other than a group of drivers and owners from the Katlehong People's Taxi Association. Sure. And, and I think, uh, of all people, I mean, did you ever think that you would be defended and protected by taxi drivers? No. I, this is something no words can describe. I was I was amazed. I am I've never been great, so grateful for taxi drivers in my life like the past few days. Our reporter on the ground, Graham Hoskin, spoke to one of the members of the association during the violence as he describes that they were there to protect their community and its infrastructure. Oh, my name is Kitarana Like, I'm coming from Kapta, Katlyong People's Taxi Association. So since with my members, we've decided to come together to try and protect what's left. But you can see people have messed up here. Even our operation is messed up. We're no longer working right now. Our operation is messed up okay. by other people. So, so what are you guys doing and how many members do you have here? Uh, I think I have uh, uh, 800 members right now on the car. Some okay. of them are there trying to chase, chase those, those looters. And, and is it just this mall you're protecting or is it other malls? We have protected uh, the Mall. Okay. We've based some other members there in Klaatsi. In, in, in so we decided to come this side to Christiane to protect what's left here. Okay, and and tell me, what are you guys, I mean, we saw your, some of your guys firing with... Firing, yes. Yeah. So, so tell me, why were you guys firing? What happened? Were there guns drawn on them or...? We're trying to chase them out because we can't chase them with mouth. They say, hey, go away. You know, some people who want action. Like, we don't fire fire them. Like, we like, fire, fire, fire on top. That is why. Okay. That's, that's what's happening. You can see they're they even running away because... They hear some gunshots. Yeah. Horn and her staff were trapped, hiding in one of the fair's rides while peeking at the ongoing violence. This is a voice note from Horn to her family, assuring them that they were safe, despite the clearly audible gunfire in the background. No, everything's still fine. Um, as they come in, they're being um, shot at when they go outside again. <laughs> Horn and her staff had set up camp near the fun fair. She now explains just how the local taxi drivers came to their rescue. We, we saw the taxi drivers defending them all. I mean, but you, you were actually defended by the taxi drivers. Tell me, tell me what happened. The people started crowding around the mall when it was Sunday evening. They started crowding, but no one came in. And then Monday during the day, the crowds um, started coming from across the road and watching the mall and all of that. And we started preparing, making sure that if something needs to happen, that we all prepared. And Monday night at about 10 o'clock, the people started coming and, yeah, they started trying to break down the gates and the police was here trying to scare them off and then they come back over. But the taxi drivers were standing here where we are situated, the fun fair, by the gates at the back of us. They were chasing the people and making sure they not coming close to us because it was still small crowds. And then when the crowds got bigger, it just they broke down the gates and they started coming in. And so Monday night was still fine. And Tuesday and yesterday was the two worst days. It was just terrifying. 
but the taxi drivers, they, stood, they all stood together and they protected us here. Yeah, it was amazing. How did they actually protect you? I mean, and <clears throat> I, I understand you were you were hiding inside a, a caravan, is that right? On Monday night when um, the crowd started coming through, we actually we were hiding in one of our big rides um, for the show called the Rota. So all of the staff um, was hiding in there, watching through there what was happening. And yeah, so it was, yeah, it was very terrifying. And what the taxi drivers did, they actually told the people, please leave the fun thing because the people are here for your kids. They're not here to disturb anyone. They're here to entertain your kids. And the people, they bypassed us because the taxi drivers were telling them, please just leave the stuff for your kids. It's they were walking like one man in the road with guns and shooting off, not shooting at the people, like warning off the people, shooting off warning signs, showing that they are protecting the territory, they're protecting those people that's here, they're protecting this mall and everything that's currently standing on these grounds. They were standing together as one man. It was unbelievable. But of course... With running gun battles taking place on South Africa's streets and neighbours turning on one another, things were bound to get ugly and innocent bystanders, unsurprisingly, became victims. Not blanks. Oh, I don't believe in blanks, boy. I believe in the fucking shorts. If you looting, we shooting. Mafia, mafia, abandoned, yeah. mafia, abandoned. Yeah. If you are looting, we are shooting. The most devastating, controversial, and notable instance of community on community violence remains the murder of 36 people in the Durban community of Phoenix, where it's alleged that Indian community members indiscriminately burnt, shot, and necklaced black members of the same community under the pretext of protecting the area from looters. Refugee Mkize, who is a victim of the July unrest, told the South African Human Rights Commission in June of this year that he was shot and was in a coma for three weeks and a few days. He also claimed that the Indian residents in Phoenix showed no humanity. Everyone, every Indian, violent, and this thing was properly organized because they even used my security companies Phoenix. Uh, the Indians were killing people and it seemed to have been somewhat properly organized because you could see that they had some security officers or some security companies that were from Phoenix and they were alerting each other that we had killed a certain amount of people at the site and then they were talking on the uh, on the radio that they had killed some a certain amount of people on this side. So it seemed to have, some, uh, to have been properly orchestrated. Thank you. Uh, and also that there was no one who was trying to assist us or uh, maybe trying to help us and trying to uh, stop them from doing what they were doing to us. Leanto, it was, it was like Jobubona Emma moving. Like, 
And it was like it was in the movies when a person, uh, people would be killed and there was no one actually stopping it. And there would be someone celebrating it and uh, making uh, whistles when they had actually uh, put a tie on, 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 uh, on another person. Oh my mate, you have full number videos, must talk to us in our houses on Nigeria. Phoenix. You're misleading people. Uh, if you need the media wants videos of what had occurred in Phoenix, you can ask us. We have such videos. When you're talking about Phoenix massacre, you mustn't be showing people carrying uh, bags of rice. That's not what happened. Other black community members in the area continue to express reservations about the racial tension they saw and how uncomfortable it has made them to stay in Phoenix. Like Phoenix, eh? Because there are many black people in Phoenix, it is similar to the black community. My wish is for the rule of law to play its part in ensuring that people are punished appropriately. Because of what happened last day where they killed our brothers and sisters, I feel unsafe walking around Phoenix because I see them as aggressive and ruthless people. I'm afraid for my life and I believe looting will okay again in Phoenix while I'm still here. Shambok, petrol bomb, the Indians were just attacking. A few Indians asked what was going on. Others showed up and hit without asking, and the people flee to the woods because there were so many Indians. While people were running to loot, Indians were attacking them. The murder of 36 South Africans in Phoenix was widely termed the Phoenix Massacre. However, some groups, such as the Phoenix Ubuntu Forum's Sham Maharja, take issue with this definition, saying that there needs to be a distinction made between the use of the term massacre, which he says demonizes the whole Indian community, and individual killings perpetrated by outliers. Now, let's go to the issue my learned colleague asked you about the massacre. Would you characterize the maiming and brutal killing of African people in Phoenix as a massacre? I think that those were killings which is not acceptable. We acknowledge that, we have condemned it, we have given information to the police to make sure those people are arrested. Those were killings, and that's what we're saying. The, 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 the massacre thing got coined by the media, certain opportunistic uh, members of or politicians and so on and so on and, and that's 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 my view if you prefer to call it a massacre so be it would you accept that your view may be incorrect yeah i accept my view may be incorrect and you should accept that your view may be incorrect representative of the social cohesion group ravi pillay holds a similar view we believe that the labeling of the entire Phoenix community and through the characterization of the events in Phoenix as a inverted commas massacre has demonized the entire Indian community because of the actions of a few. So we have grave reservations about attempts to characterize the deaths in Phoenix as a massacre for the following reasons. The term massacre is usually associated with the idea of mass killings carried out at the same time and in the same place. 
In Phoenix, the killings did not occur at the same time, nor did they occur in the same place. Unfortunately, international organizations such as the United Nations, Amnesty International, and the International Criminal Court do not define the term massacre. Where I think it, in ordinary language, it has a particular connotation. But what it can't be is it can't be a contextual. So it has been stated that the term massacre, being a synonym of butchery, carnage, is by nature hyperbolic or subjective, primarily used in partisan description of events. So there's no neutral definition. Massacre or killing. South Africa is squabbling over terminology. While a full year later, tangible action and information remains desperately thin on the ground. In the aftermath of the bloodiest days in South Africa's post-democratic history, General Sikhalale Masimola's office has, for the past three weeks, declined several requests for interviews about the July riots, as well as a request for detailed reports on the deaths that occurred during that period. The general spokesperson told us that the South African Police Service won't be participating in any July unrest interviews. In fact, we cannot even provide South Africa with exact numbers of how many people lost their lives as a direct result of the July 2021 unrest. The number is estimated to be more than 340, but the exact figures are still a total mystery. Meanwhile, Police Minister Becky Kele stated that 12 instigators of the July riots had been identified. But during a South African Human Rights Commission interview, Police Commissioner Kechla Sitole only seemed willing to confirm the arrest of nine of these alleged instigators. In July, the minister made a number of public pronouncements relating to the unrest. One of the key statements from the minister included the following that the police have a list of 12 instigators this is a list of 12 south africans who have been inciting violence where did the minister get this information from and how are you with apprehending the 12 instigators i think firstly the information relating to the 12 instigators was generated from various angles, which I wouldn't know exactly the other angles from which uh, the minister would have got it, because I also confronted the investigation teams, uh, crime, both crime detection and TPCI, and said, explain to me what's the origin of this part. We had to report as per how it was then uh, treated because uh, we also avoided to mislead the, the, the public domain and everyone else. But uh, I gave a, a directive to the investigation team to say, let's get the dockets uh, together. Let's have the team and uh, such people who were so implicated, uh, I think uh, we we managed to arrest um i think it, because we're trying to make sure that we follow the individuals i think it, they they were arrested uh, the the latest report that i got it was when we we, we had arrested nine already 
and the party we were continuing with the 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 exercise so you've arrested nine instigators so-called instigators yeah so-called instigators that the 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 term needed to be clearly defined while south africa's human rights commission has set up yet another inquiry which seems to be a move in the right direction and the national prosecuting authority claims to be ready to prosecute some instigators of the violence the truth is the npa has not yet laid charges and south africa has not actually been offered any tangible answers to who was behind the unrest why our law enforcement agencies were not ready and of course importantly what we plan to do if anything like this happens again there seems to be a gaping hole in south africa's national defense which has not been plugged given that the unrest cost south africa billions and resulted in the death of hundreds we mark this first anniversary by saying we have not forgotten and as a nation we wait for the critical reply to the question of what is the nation to do if it descends into a similar state of chaos but unfortunately at the moment the answer to that seems woefully unclear you are listening to boots on the ground behind essays national lockdown boots on the ground is a short podcast series documenting south africa's national lockdown as a result of the outbreak of covid-19 boots on the ground is a true piece of mobile journalism all interviews voices and sound effects have been gathered using nothing but smartphones boots on the ground is a production of multimedia live a division of arena holdings narration done by samad lutuli audio gathered by graham hoskin and alex patrick sound design and editing by page muller production by multimedia head scott peter smith to catch the next episode of boots on the ground for free please subscribe to the podcast on iono.fm spotify apple podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts